0: there was still an opportunity to offer prayer, offer sacrifice for those who had died in order that they might be saved, in order that their sins might be forgiven. what has been happening to me lately it's been pretty interesting people I'm finally at the age where there's a a wider disparity between how old people think I am and how old I actually am and so I keep getting comments that I look really young uh, which is great to hear you know Um, I guess at some point you know when you're when you're younger you never want to hear that but anyways um, and I think it's because I don't have facial hair because I actually found out that I just I hate facial hair and, but recently, you know, I'm kind of like uh, getting back into the idea of having a beard. You know, it's basically to say, I think uh, I think facial hair is growing on me. Welcome back, everyone. Episode 118 It is so good to be with you. Uh, thank you for listening. If this is your first time or you never have done so before, please leave a rating and a review for this podcast. Actually write out a review that helps other people find it and as always share this uh, with other people on your social media or other people you think might benefit if you do share it on social media, make sure you tag us at Mana Food for Thought on Instagram at ManaF4T on Twitter, and you can find all of our content on our website ManaFoodForThought.com, all spelled out. You can contact us there, see all of our previous content, our blogs, etc., and you can become a financial sponsor for as little as one dollar a month by clicking on the Patreon tab when you land on the homepage. Thank you for all of our sponsors. If you do that, you get perks. Those perks are in the works. Ooh, I like that. And without further ado, let's get into this episode with Joy, Junk, and Jesus. So, I know what's been going on with you over the past week, but I've had a really blessed and full week. My daughter, Hannah, turned four this past week. And so, uh, this past weekend, we went to Disneyland for the first time with our kids. And it was a joy, first of all, because we got in for free. We have a friend that works there, which is such a blessing because that it would not have been possible otherwise for us to go. So it was a huge gift. Uh, and my daughter got to, She's. she was, I don't know if she really knew what we were doing, but we told her it's where Mickey lives and where all the Disney princesses live. Like basically anyone, anything associated with Disney that she likes, we told them that's where they live. Spider-Man, et um, So they were both very excited. Um, but we, we ran into uh, print the person dressed as princess Elsa from frozen who my wife or my daughter is like crazy about. So uh, we missed the line to see her. So we we're just kind of standing back and watching. And the cast member who was assigned to that character uh, said, hey, you know, uh, if you want to walk back with her, if your daughter wants to walk back with her, that would be OK if, if it's OK with her. And, uh, so my daughter got to hold princess Elsa's hand and walk back to the area where she goes, you know, uh, into the casting area and we got to take a picture with her. We didn't think we were going to be able to do that. And Hannah, like my daughter has not stopped talking about it. She's like, I got to do that. No other kids got to do that. It was just so, so, so special. Um, and my son got to see Spider-Man in uh, California adventure flip through the air that like animatronic thing that happens just super cool. So Uh, It was a really, really great day, Uh, and the, the following day for our actual birthday, we went to the zoo where we have passes, and it was just really good. But my junk was that I was and am still so, so tired because we got so much sun, and even though I wore sunscreen and all of that, like a longer sun exposure for people like my wife and I who have autoimmune diseases can sometimes flare different symptoms of that kind of inflammatory response. And we were both feeling it. But I think I was especially like my my wife is really she was really a trooper for me and really helping me out that day because I I was doing the best I could. But um, I'm still feeling the effects from it. And this was like five days ago. So uh, your prayers would be much appreciated because that kind of stuff, it, it takes a while for it to kind of settle back into normal. So I've definitely felt like I've been kind of flaring since then. So that's just stinks, but it is what it is. So your prayers are appreciated. Um, my Jesus moment. Um, I finally got around to applying for, um, this spiritual direction certificate program in, uh, in orange County in the diocese of orange. And I just had like literally right before recording this, just had my kind of introductory interview for them to determine if I can enter or not. And, um, I don't know. I just experienced Jesus in the sense that like, they asked me a lot of questions about, you know, my own spirituality. And I just think that being reminded of all that God has done in my life, you know, is was really beautiful. And also was reminded that like, if, if this doesn't work out, like if this isn't what the Lord wants, then he'll tell me what he does want. Like it just gave me kind of a sense of trust in him and peace as to whatever happens. So that was a Jesus moment. And another uh, Jesus moment was that, Um, two uh, young adults who were, I believe, freshmen in high school when I first started at my current parish eight years ago. They went through confirmation. They uh, were peer leaders. They went off to college and did some amazing things. They just graduated from college, and my wife and I got invited to their um, uh, graduation party. And just, I don't know, just seeing How the Lord works and the just the trajectory of their lives and you know, how um God is just continuing to bless them and we continue are blessed to be able to be a part of their lives. It's just wonderful. So um yeah, Daniel and Sophia, you guys are awesome. Um and shout out to your parents. Hi Pam. Um, so yeah, they're wonderful. So that was I really experienced Jesus in that and really the beauty of being invited into people's families and their lives when you're in ministry is just it's a gift and I think too many of us in ministry take that for granted. Um, and maybe even priests do as well, priests and deacons who get to come do blessings of homes and, you know, baptisms, funerals, weddings, these really significant moments in people's lives. Like, I hope it's never lost on us that we're invited into those in just a really beautiful way. Um, so, yeah, so all of that has nothing to do with the topic for this episode. And I was, as I was praying about what to talk about, it was so funny, like so many different things went through my head. And this just idea that's been on my kind of list of topics for a long time just keeps kind of like coming up. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. So this episode is going to be about purgatory. And you might be like, oh, my gosh, why are we talking about purgatory? I'll talk a little bit about indulgences and things like that. And the reason is this is the number one searched topic on CatholicAnswers.com, the number one thing that people have questions about when it comes to church teaching, especially people who are looking maybe to convert or who struggle with Catholicism, people who are even anti-Catholics. Like this is a huge sticking point for so many people. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Like the church has this massive, huge historical doctrine that's associated with that. You need to do all of these like works and things to earn your salvation. It's this big buoyed up amplified perception Of what is a very simple doctrine um, in terms of church teaching, and so I'm going to give you uh, some points that, if if you watch uh, Father Mike Schmitz on his Ascension Presents, he did a video on purgatory not too long ago, and he pointed out these three kind of just uh, very basic teachings that the church has about purgatory and it's just essentially these three things and that's it and then i'm going to expand on some of the scriptures that he referenced but and a lot of others that where we have biblical roots for this and then how the practice of indulgences which you may have heard about in history class but you may not be aware is still part of the church uh, tradition and practice is uh, is a part of that so um if, you've, if, you, if someone were to ask you, like, where do you find purgatory in the Bible or why do Catholics believe in purgatory and you don't have a, a very quick go-to answer or a, ability to kind of defend that or talk about it, um, know that that is a very big point of contention. It will come up in your conversations about faith if they haven't yet. Um, and we need to have, like, a good, succinct answer. So if you don't, I hope that this episode will be of benefit to you. So um, I want to quote Father Mike Schmitz on these three. These are the three things that we as Catholics uh, believe about purgatory. And the first is that there exists some final place of purification after we die before we're able to enter heaven. Okay. That we believe that that exists and we believe that scripture tells us it exists. Okay. Secondly, that that process of purification does involve some kind of pain or discomfort because we'll be being purged, not only of all of our Uh, you know, venial sins are smaller sins that still are on our soul that don't separate us from God, but also all of the attachment to sins and all of the ways sin has scarred or misshapen our souls throughout the course of our lives. Okay. And then lastly, we believe that the prayers of those on earth can help those who are going through this period of purification for heaven. Okay. That is all that we essentially believe about purgatory, that there is that purgatory is a place of final purification. Of some amount of time, it could be instantaneous, it could be, you know, um, a matter of, you know, earthly years, but purgatory is a place outside of time, just as heaven and hell are. So we, we don't really know. So it could be a, it's some place, whether it's a moment or a series of moments, but some place of purification involves some pain or discomfort. But the prayers of those on earth can help us while we are there. And that is why we have a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church to pray for the living and the dead. That is one of the um, spiritual works of mercy, uh, to pray for the living and the dead. So that's why we have like prayers like eternal rest grant unto thee, you know, those prayers that are often said, um, or may the souls of the faithfully departed, you know, rest in the mercy of God, uh, that are sometimes commonly said after um, we say grace before meals. They're sometimes added along that. It's a longstanding tradition in our church of praying for the dead. That is why. So where do we get this from heaven? Where do we get this idea that purgatory exists? First of all, purgatory, the word itself, you're not going to find it in Scripture. You're also not going to find the word Trinity in Scripture. Okay, so just because the word's not there doesn't mean we can't infer it or see it plainly spelled out logically when we look at scripture as a whole. Okay. Purgatory is just the name of a place of purgation. That's where it comes from. Okay. Being purged of our sins and the effects of sins on our soul. So it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, this is almost at the very end of the Bible, when John is having this vision of revelation given to him about the end and about the creation of a new heaven and new earth, and looking at this like final, you know, place of perfection says that nothing unclean shall enter. Nothing unclean shall enter, but we can also see in Romans chapter three, I believe it's verse 23, that says all sin, everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Okay. So we have these two verses that seem to be in conflict. Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Everybody does it. Everyone is a sinner. No one can escape it. However, nothing unclean, no sin can enter heaven. So you would naturally infer that then no one would be qualified to enter heaven. By their own effort and you would be correct this is why saint augustine often says that like we're all destined to hell it's only because jesus died for us on the cross that we have any ability to go to heaven that we cannot merit our own salvation we cannot earn our salvation it is a free gift that we then need to respond to and then participate in a continual response of faith once we have recognized the gift that we hope that we are receiving okay so if this is ever tied to arguments about like, about about us attaching salvation to works and that you can earn your way into heaven, no, that is not what Catholics believe. We believe that you cannot earn your way into heaven, that we are saved uh, by Jesus Christ alone. However, we are justified or found righteous—not uh, justified, we are found righteous of that um, based on our actions. So we cannot earn our salvation— We need to respond in faith to Jesus. However, we will be judged according to our works because as the book of James says, faith without works is dead. Okay. So you cannot separate the two. If your works do not match your faith, if you're doing evil works, but you profess faith, your faith is in vain. It's not real faith that they are a package deal. Okay. So once you respond, once you cooperate with the grace that has been given us, that was won for us by that, um, the meritorious death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation, we need to participate by responding, by loving God and loving our neighbor, by doing those works, okay? But those works in, uh, in and of themselves do not uh, gain us any sort of salvation, okay? They allow us to continually retain that justification won for us by Jesus on the cross, okay? Because we are now held to a higher standard once we know that and respond to it. So we have this tension. Nothing unclean can enter heaven. Everyone is unclean. Therefore, you would infer, logically, no one can enter heaven, So we have a problem here. In fact, this is echoed in other places, uh, like in the gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is giving the sermon on the Mount. he's talking, I believe about anger in Matthew chapter five. Um, He talks about, you know, the responsibility to um, make, um, make amends for the things that we've done uh, or something to that effect. And he says this, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. You will not be released until you have paid the last penny. So it implies then, almost directly says that like everything that we do has a particular consequence. Okay. Now this is obviously talking about if you have some issue with someone else, you need to settle it in court. If there's any kind of debt, you know, you need to, you need to pay that or you're going to be thrown in prison, but you will not be released until you've paid the last penny. Okay. So we can interpret that spiritually as uh, saying that there are consequences to our actions and those consequences need to be um, f- fulfilled or experienced, we cannot escape from them. Okay, so you may say as a response to this, well, what about confession? Hey, what about you know confessing to God in prayer? Okay, first of all, you can confess venial sins in prayer, and if you've never heard the the difference between these and where it biblically comes from, uh, go to First John chapter five, verses sixteen and seventeen, and there's a difference laid out there between the types of sins. That, um, that kill the body or the soul and the type that do not, the type that are serious and kind of sever our relationship with God and those that just wound charity within us. Um, and so 1 John 5, verses 16 to 17, say this. If anyone sees his brother sinning, if the sin is not deadly, he should pray to God and he will give him life. Okay, so non deadly sin, what we would call venial sins, you can uh, ask forgiveness for in prayer. And there's a a myriad of other ways that they're forgiven, um, you know, uh, very easily that you probably don't even realize. Um, But it says this is only for those whose sin is not deadly. There is such a thing as deadly sin about which I do not say that you can pray. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not deadly. Okay, so there's a difference here saying that you can pray. To be forgiven of venial sins but when it comes to mortal sins sins that are deadly you cannot pray for them to be forgiven something else must be done okay that is why we have the practice of confession because if a mortal sin is so serious that it severs our relationship from god and the community because there's no such thing as a private sin sin affects everyone around us sin affects the entire body of christ we must logically, in order to be restored to both God and community, go to a representative who is a one, a representative of both God and the community, and that is the priest. The priest in particular, who's been vested with apostolic authority straight from Jesus or passed down from those who've been given that authority by Jesus through apostolic succession and valid priestly ordination, who still have that ability to forgive sins. However, Just because a sin is forgiven or absolved does not mean that our responsibilities or what's called the satisfaction for that sin has fully been uh, paid or removed. Okay. So what I'm not saying that something was uh, that Jesus didn't, you know, do everything he needed to do on the cross in order for us to be forgiven. He absolutely did. Uh, But confession has four parts. Okay. First, we need to have contrition. We need to, you know, actually recognize we're sorry. We need to repent. Then we need to go to confession and act and confess those sins. Then there is absolution. That is when we are forgiven for our sins. But there is a fourth step of confession, and that is called satisfaction. And part of that happens when you pray your penance. You know, if, if you didn't have to pray your penance, if your penance meant nothing, then we wouldn't really be given one. There'd be no sense and be like, okay, for your penance, go say, you know, a, to our fathers or a rosary or whatever. If that didn't matter in some sense, then there'd be no reason for them to say it. Now, yes, if you forget your penance, if you don't do it, your sins are still forgiven. You're still absolved because this is part of the other step. It's part of satisfaction. Okay. Now, when you pray your penance, it doesn't mean that all the satisfaction due to those sins has happened. It just means you're working toward it. Okay. So what does satisfaction mean? I want you to imagine that your soul is a piece of wood. And every time you sin, a nail is hammered into that piece of wood. Okay. So you have, imagine your soul. If you're, you know, a big fat sinner, like I am, we all sin is this piece of wood riddled with nails, okay? When we go to confession, that removes all of the nails. All of the sins are removed. However, is the piece of wood the same? No. What remains are the holes. Now, we cannot ever be restored to exactly what we once were because sin has an ability to scar and wound our soul. So there's a reason why someone can commit all these heinous acts of sin And then go to confession and feel maybe the guilt or the shame be removed, but still struggle over time with some compulsion to sin or to go back into that same sin or f- still feeling guilty for that sin, still having some attachment to it. Maybe not feeling, you know, like this instantaneous, like, ah, I'm forgiven. You know, there's still this kind of like, oh, but I still feel gross about this. Okay. That is because that sin wounds our soul and absolution forgiveness of our sins doesn't remove that. It's simply removes the the sin from our soul but the effects of that sin, the way it has scarred our not only our souls but our mind, our you know the the chemical reactions that happen when we do things that are more addictive, things like that, that still remains. That's just God doesn't just like snap his fingers and fix that, fixes that because our body like has a function. And when we kind of tie ourselves up in these sinful knots, it takes time to untie those different practices and we do that through this last step of satisfaction. So what purgatory does is it purifies us of any remaining nails that represent venial sins, small sins that do not separate us from God, but are still there. But it also plugs the holes and restores us to the perfect, pure soul that we were created to be and have. Okay. That is what purgatory does. That's why we need purgatory. It would make absolutely no sense would make no sense if someone was a like imagine hitler okay imagine this is an extreme example but imagine hitler at the very last moment of his life repented and had confession on his deathbed do you honestly think that that one singular moment would have fixed his mind body and soul in such a way that if he were to die right after that he would be ready for heaven immediately no he wouldn't there would be a lot of work that would need to happen because our body and soul are not separate. Our body and soul are united, okay? We are a body and a soul, united. You can't separate them. I know it speaks like that some places in the, in the Bible. That was a very Greek philosophical concept that you could separate, you know, the, the, the flesh and the spirit, okay? It makes these, these categorical claims about things that are of the flesh and things that are of the spirit to show us like what is earthly and what is spiritual or heavenly, but it doesn't mean that we can separate those things. So anything that we do with our bodies affects our soul. Anything that we do with our bodies affects our soul. When we sin, that affects our soul. So if you have a whole lifetime of sinning and you just repent at that final moment, yes, all your sins will be forgiven if your repentance is authentic. But that piece of wood that's representing your soul has got a whole lot of holes that need to be plugged. A whole lot of restoration and undoing of a sinful pattern of behavior that's plagued your entire life before you are able to experience the glory of heaven. Because otherwise it would almost be painful, maybe even sickening to go to. I know that sounds crazy, but imagine like you are trapped in a dark room for days and then all of a sudden you find a way out and you go out and it's blisteringly hot and the sun is shining bright in your face like that is going to be so painful for your eyes because you're so accustomed to the dark. And even though you found the way out, and even though you said, I'm going to take the way out, I don't want to stay in here anymore. That's what we do when we go to confession. I don't want to stay in this dark place anymore. I want to escape. I want to go out. Our eyes are still not adjusted. We're still accustomed to the darkness. So even if we go out into the light, it's painful. Purgatory, in a sense, would be if you found that way out, and you said, you know what? First, there's a light switch here, and we should slowly turn the lights up so our eyes adjust So we are then ready to go out into the sun and not be hurt. That is what purgatory does is it slowly reverses the effects of the darkness of sin through some kind of process of purgation. And then we are restored to a wholly purified state of our soul that is ready to enter heaven in perfect unity and love with God. Okay. Otherwise we would not be prepared. We would not be ready. Okay. So. That passage I read from Matthew, you will not be released until you've paid the last penny has to do with that kind of satisfaction that there is a, um, there's two words that are used for this that are, that I'm, that are escaping me, but I want to say that there is a, a, um, like a spiritual satisfaction and a temporal satisfaction or something like that that need to happen. Now, Jesus died for all of the, the spiritual ramifications of our sins so that we could be forgiven. So we could be absolved so that sin could be removed from us and that we would no longer Um, have to face condemnation um, for the fact that we sin, that forgiveness is available to us if we repent and if we, you know, confess our sins. However, we can't just, you know, go murdering people and then go to confession every week, even if we are really sorry, like that does something to us and that needs to be undone before we can enter heaven, okay? People in the early church saw the need for this. They saw the need for this. In Matthew chapter 12, even, Um, Jesus alludes to the fact that, uh, I don't have these earmarked or copied on my notes. So I'm, I'm looking them up physically. So I'm sorry if you can hear the rattling of my, my Bible pages, but in Matthew 12, uh, verse 32, Jesus is talking about sin and blasphemy. And he says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, And whoever, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, so there's some sin that is very binding or difficult or unforgivable. The church would usually call this the sin of impenitence. The only sin that God cannot forgive is the one you don't ask forgiveness for. But this is what Jesus says as a qualifier at the very end. He says, these will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So why is Jesus talking about the fact that forgiveness might be possible in the age to come, the age after death, after this life, if there was nothing else but heaven or hell after this, if forgiveness was remotely possible, then there's something to that. In fact, uh, even in, I believe it's first Peter chapter three, this has to do more so with the kind of Jewish conception of heaven and hell or of, of Gehenna of the kind of a holding place for the the righteous souls who had died before the gates of heaven were opened. They were in a place that they believe was called the bosom of Abraham. Um, this is why in the Apostles' Creed, it says that after Jesus died, he descended into hell. It means he descended into the place of the dead where these people were. And it says in uh, 1 Peter three eighteen: For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Uh Where is this? Oh, yeah. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. In it, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison who had once been disobedient while God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of his ark in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. Uh, And so there's this kind of opportunity. Why would Jesus go preach to the dead, even the dead who'd been disobedient, as it says in 1 Peter 3, if there was no possibility for post-death purification? Okay, post-death purification, that is what purgatory is. That's what we believe about purgatory. Okay, some other places in scripture where you will find this, a very common defense of purgatory, uh, the two most common ones you'll probably hear, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is often the most quoted because it's common in all Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, um, this has to do with uh, the role of God's ministers. And it says, according to the grace of God given to me, this is Paul speaking, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But each one must be careful how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that uh, that is there, namely Jesus Christ. So he's saying just like workers build, you know, a house off a foundation, you need to build everything that you do off the foundation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, the work of each will come to light for the day, meaning the end, will disclose it. Listen to this. It will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. Okay, so there's this purifying fire that will come on the day, the day of the Lord in the end to show if what we've built on our foundation can hold up if there is a firm foundation or not. It continues. If the work stands that someone built upon the foundation, that person will receive a wage or a reward. But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. You will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay. So there is some kind of purification moment of, Um, I can't remember. I always forget this word, but when you melt down metal and you take off this, I think it's called the slag, all of the impurities in the metal, you kind of, um, ladle them out so that what you have left is like pure metal that will happen essentially to our souls. And imagine like, I imagine that's not very, uh, if you know, the gold or the metal were personified would not be very painful to be melt or not be very comfortable to be melted down. It would be painful. Okay, but by no means, it says this in the catechism specifically, by no means is the pain that is proper to purgatory anything like the pain of hell, the pain or the fire or the, da- the damnation, condemnation of hell. It distinctly separates those two. So when you are in purgatory, the only place you can go from purgatory is heaven. You can't stay in purgatory forever. You will always, you're only in purgatory to be purified for heaven. Purgatory is not a holding place where you can go to either hell or heaven. Purgatory is a Kind of a welcome mat, a clean room or a mud room, if, if, uh, if you understand that analogy, a mud room to prepare you to get cleaned up for heaven. Okay? So when you die and you are judged, you will either go straight to hell or to heaven through purgatory, most likely, or if you die in a pure state of sanctification with no satisfaction left on your soul. Uh, no sins left on your soul, then you might go straight to heaven. Okay. So that is some of the biblical basis we have. We also have a very good uh, scriptural citation for this, but it occurs in the second book of Maccabees. Now, the reason I don't usually lead with this is because Protestant Bibles and Protestants, non-Catholic Christians often um, um, are the ones asking questions about purgatory. They don't have the same old Testament that we do. Okay. At the time of Jesus, there was no definitive listing of the books in the Old Testament. There was disputed, and some were written in languages uh, other than Hebrew. And so the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, was regularly in use. And it was what Jesus quoted most often when he used the Old Testament. And in that Septuagint Greek translation... There are seven more books that only are written in Greek. We only have Greek manuscripts. And so those who were kind of Hebrew purists who only wanted to use books that were written in Hebrew, they didn't have them. That eventually became the listing of books, the Hebrew books that Martin Luther deferred to in the Protestant Reformation. So that's why Protestant Bibles, the King James Bible, etc., they have only the Old Testament books that we have Hebrew manuscripts for. Okay, it's called the Alexandrian canon or the Hebrew canon, um, which is, you know, the Jewish people spoke Hebrew. That's their culture. That's their nationality. However, Greek was the common tongue um, for 300 years before Jesus Christ. So there's a huge block of time there where stuff was only really being written in Greek and the Jewish people. If they had had first, especially first Maccabees in Hebrew, I guarantee you it would have been in in their uh, canon of the Old Testament because that is where they get the Feast of Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah originates is stories from first Maccabees, okay? Uh, And second Maccabees tells some of those same stories, but from a different perspective or some different sets of stories as well, okay? So these are historical books, first and second Maccabees, about a family called the Maccabeans who helped rebel against Uh, the Greek and Roman um, um, oppressors of their time and kind of ushered in this small monarchy and kind of uh, almost a renewed glory days of uh, the Hebrew people. Okay, so they would have had this in their Bibles or in their uh, collection of scriptures had it been in Hebrew. Okay, but we only have these in Greek because of when they were written, the time they were written. Jesus used the Septuagint. He quotes it. It was what was used predominantly in the early church. And when the canon was first, uh, you know, laid out old and new Testament, when we had definitive lists of that in the middle of the second century, that is what we in the Catholic church have used ever since, um, that definitive list. And that was confirmed, argued about and confirmed at the end of the fourth century when there was still only one Christian church, the Catholic church. And that was used all the way up until the Protestant reformation. Okay. So these books, though you might have to argue some history, they might not be as convincing still even then because they don't appear in Protestant Bibles for those reasons. Okay. So I'm getting into a lot of history. I hope, I hope you uh, are still with me, but now that we've said that um, in second Maccabees chapter 12, um, there's a story about a battle that happens. And there were some soldiers in the battle who were part of the covenant people with the Lord. They had chosen to follow the Lord. So they had been part of his, like his chosen people, but they were also wearing these medallions for luck in battle. So they weren't fully trusting. Them. it was almost like they were practicing some minor form of idolatry and they died in battle. Okay. So the leaders, um, Judas Maccabeus being one of them saw this as a threat to these dead soldiers souls. And so what he does, he is, he takes up a collection um, in order to help them. So it says, uh, this is in verse 42. Uh, Turning to supplication, they prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. The noble Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had had fallen. He then took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, Inasmuch as he had the resurrection in mind, for if we were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Thus, he made atonement for the dead that they might be absolved from their sin. He made atonement for the dead that they might be absolved of their sin. If once you die, that's it, you know, everything that's done, that's exactly, you know, how your soul is going to be judged. And it's either straight to heaven, straight to hell. There's no reason to pray for the dead. Absolutely none. And yet we have here and numerous other places in the Bible that we have, they're just mentions of praying for the dead. You know, Paul in one letter to, I believe it's first Timothy, he's talking about the family of uh, Onesiphorus and he's talking about like all the good deeds that this person did and that we need to pray for mercy upon him. Many scholars believe that that, that he, that person he's talking about is dead because all he mentions is greeting his family. And remembering all the things that he had done in the past, okay? So, and there's other places too where, um, you know, talking about the cloud of witnesses and, you know, praying for those. And this interaction we have with the dead and those who surround us uh, is so important and was so important for the early church. There was this understanding that there were ramifications for our sins. And in a Jewish context, which bled into the Christian context and understanding of God and the afterlife, there was still an opportunity to offer prayer, offer sacrifice for those who had died in order that they might be saved, in order that their sins might be forgiven. Okay, so that is why we pray for those souls in purgatory. That is why we have things like All Souls Day and All Saints Day on November 1st and 2nd, uh, irrespectively. So All Saints Day is November 1st and All Souls Day is November 2nd, we pray for all the souls who have died specifically on November 2nd so that they might um, be relieved of their time in purgatory and enter into heaven. Okay. Purgatory also is what some theologians speculate is the theological way we can view things like ghosts and spirits interacting with our world. Because if part of going through purgatory means you have to go back through some of the sinful things you did in your life and reverse the effects, kind of purge yourself of the effects then that might involve your soul having to travel back to particular places, moments, people, to interact with them in such a way until that is removed. Okay, And that might be our experience of ghosts, spirits, things like that. Uh, otherwise, they can also be easily explained as interactions with angels and or demons. Okay? And so all of those things combined can explain a lot of the supernatural things that you see maybe on like sci-fi shows or things like that, that we experience here on earth. Uh, and so we even have that kind of experiential potential evidence for purgatory. So what does this have to do with indulgences? Okay. As I've mentioned, purgatory has to do with the satisfaction that is owed every sin. There are consequences to every sin. We are forgiven for those sins because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But that doesn't immediately remove, uh, it removes the guilt of sin And that we don't have to pay the debt of that guilt by going to hell for that sin because we've repented of it and we're claiming the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and recognizing He died to save us and He rose to save us. However, it doesn't immediately fix the brokenness in us that caused us to sin and the brokenness that persists when the cycle of sin continues. We form habits. Bad, you know, addictions, vices. When we commit these sins, and they do something to our bodies, our brain chemistry, etc. Uh, those holes in the wood need to be plugged, and they need to be fixed. Not all of that needs to happen only in purgatory. Some of that can all some or all of that can happen here on earth by us making um, making that satisfaction, making amends for the things that we've done, righting wrongs that we've done. Okay, so I can, there's a difference between going to confession and saying, like, I, um, I really hurt someone when I was young in a fight in school, and I, I bullied them and I made fun of them, and I'm really, really sorry about that, and you are truly sorry. You'll be forgiven of that sin, but the, that sin still affects that other person, it still affects the body of Christ, it still affects you, the anger you experienced. Going and making amends to that person could be a way in which you can begin to... Um, complete the satisfaction due for that sin, the temporal punishment due for that sin, okay? So the eternal punishment for all of our sins, that was removed by Jesus on the cross, okay? When we repent of those things, they are gone. But the temporal punishments, the things that affect the body of Christ, those things all need to be worked through and removed as well. And if Jesus just snapped his fingers and allowed that to happen, it'd be so easy for us to just commit sins, go to confession, commit sins, go to confession. Like there'd be no need, you know, to... to really do anything good or virtuous, honestly. Um, So it's just part of the human condition that this wrestling between grace and sin happens in us and that we can't just simply receive forgiveness and then go about our merry way and be like, all right, I'm never going to do that again or that's never going to affect me again. I'm never going to think about it again. It's never going to affect anyone else again, even though I haven't even made any sort of amends or um, apologized or whatever, you know. I brought it to the Lord, which is the most important thing to do, but there are other things that can be done to deal with the effects of that sin. So those things all have to do with satisfaction. That's what indulgences have always been and are. Okay. You can, the church teaches, you can obtain an, an indulgence indulgence for yourself or on behalf of a soul in purgatory, someone who has died. In the history of the church, there was a corrupt practice of buying or paying for indulgences. That was never church teaching. That was never something that was taught as accurate. None of those things are considered valid. You cannot pay for an indulgence. You cannot, you know, earn one by like, you know, um, I, I don't know. You can't, but you can't buy them. Okay. Um, there are certain prayers and spiritual acts or uh, sacrifices that can be done to make up for the satisfaction due to your sins to atone for them. So that you can wipe away up until that point in time, part or all of your time that you've kind of racked up in purgatory so far, okay? So there's no type of indulgence that you can um, can seek that would wipe out all of the purgatory for your entire life, even the things you have not yet done. No, that's not possible. So if you receive what's called a plenary indulgence, which is an indulgence of all the time in purgatory, you receive, uh, basically it's considered you've done certain acts of spiritual purification or atonement that um, have reversed some of those effects of sin on your soul plugged to those holes in such a way that all of the time that you have accrued in purgatory so far is now wiped clean and then you would just go back to zero and accrue each time you sin from there okay that's what an indulgence does now there are many different uh, potential indulgences out there there are a lot of partial ones there are some plenary ones All of them usually involve that within 30 days of whatever the act act or actions uh, involved in the indulgence are, you have to receive communion in a state of grace, you have to go to confession, a valid confession, and you have to pray for the intentions of the Pope. Those three things usually accompany every single indulgence, that when you do the act or the event of the indulgence and those three things, that is considered spiritual um, purification, acts of spiritual purification or atonement that are... Um, amounting enough to that amount of purgatory time in purgatory. Okay. Now there's no like, you know, you're not going to get a certificate in the mail. You know, you're not going to apply for one online. You don't pay for it or fees. This is something that the church just in their wisdom has said, Hey, if you do these things of your own accord, based on the authority given us by Jesus Christ and the guiding of the Holy Spirit that we pronounce that you can make up for some of the satisfaction for your sins here on earth, which makes sense. You know, we can make amends, we can ask for forgiveness, like, and that has a different effect on us than being just simply forgiven of our sins and confession does both are necessary, but you can understand just in the human experience, how both of those things are needed for complete, uh, and whole healing in a person's life. Okay. Now we can't possibly go back and do, you know, ever absolute undo absolutely everything that we've done. So these things are very like general and, um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, promulgated that way from the Vatican, but like, let's say going on a pilgrimage, a real spiritual pilgrimage or going to a Marian shrine, um, as an active spiritual pilgrimage or retreat and, you know, making certain prayers or offerings, um, you know, of yourself spiritually com- accompanied with those essential things, uh, receiving the Eucharist confession and praying for the intentions of the Pope within 30 days, Um, then it's considered just of your own kind of honor system that you have that time in purgatory. And God knows, God knows like if you really are sorry, if you've really repented, he knows what work has been done and undone in your soul due to the effects of sin. But that is essentially what an indulgence is. Okay and we have you know a, a lot of the things that I mentioned in those scriptural citations that I quoted have to do with paying the last penny making sure we have these ramifications that you can do obviously some of that now you can make amends for the things that you've done here on earth and why wouldn't you why would you just sit with these or let the effects of sin fester in people that we've hurt or the people around us when you can do something about it this is this is why we have a penance when we go to confession to show that we're going to try and make some spiritual act Uh, that shows that we are sorry that and begins to undo what was done by the sin in our soul and serious prayer and serious sin cannot coexist in a person one will destroy the other and so we begin you know we end confession with those penances because we want to bring back that serious prayer into our soul to root out sin and its effects and causes and all of that in our lives so that is why we believe in purgatory it's scriptural Uh, It makes sense with the ramifications of sin, the punishments according to sin, like the things that obviously sin has consequences and not all of them are uh, uh, undone simply by going to confession. um, That we, and we only have the ability to receive forgiveness of our sins because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But once we respond to that, we can cooperate by doing good uh, because faith without works is dead. And so all of that comes together in the church's teaching on purgatory. There's some great resources on this and articles on this on CatholicAnswers.com. As I said, it's their most searched topic. I'll include all of these scriptural citations as well as some catechism citations on purgatory in the show notes. So if you want to read up a little bit more on these and have those like, uh, easily accessible, if you ever get in a conversation about purgatory with someone, uh, I recommend that. I highly recommend using the hammer, nail, wood analogy. It helps people understand that like sin affects other people. And those four steps to confession helps people realize, especially Catholics who maybe don't have an accurate understanding of purgatory, um, helps them see like, oh, I didn't realize that like there was not only eternal consequences for my sin, but there's a temporal punishment according to that sin that um, that Jesus paid on the cross. Yes, but that I also have a responsibility for how that affected other people in the world and I can undo The effects of that sin in my soul and on the world if I so choose by doing things that we would call indulgences okay so these things don't mean that we believe that we can earn our salvation that we can buy our way into heaven that um you know we can merit our salvation no it's only because of what Jesus did for us and the instruction he gave us and other places in scripture that show us we need to pray for the dead forgiveness post-death is something that is a concern and even a, a, a possibility that's mentioned in scripture Why is that if there's no place of purification after death or no chance after death for that to be repented or undone in some way? Okay. So that is hopefully a somewhat concise. This went longer than I intended, but a somewhat concise teaching on purgatory indulgences, a little bit about confession and mortal and venial sin. I hope it's a benefit to you. I hope that helps give you a better sense of what the church teaches, where it comes from, why it makes sense. And why it might be beneficial for you to think about, um, you know, pursuing for yourself um, some spiritual acts of purification and atonement in the form of some kind of plenary or partial indulgence to help you kind of begin to undo the effects of some of those sins. So if you've, this applies to you and it's good for you to know if you've ever gone to confession, especially for a sin that you commit over and over and over again, and you go to confession and you come out and you don't feel any different. That's because sin is still affecting you and the world around you. Yes, we've repented of it, but we still have our attachments and sin still has its consequences and effects on our soul and the souls of those around us. So if you want to continue to undo those ramifications and effects of sin on you and on the world, then looking for that satisfaction those good deeds good works acts of spiritual purification and atonement um, for our purification and purgation that can begin here on earth you don't need to wait until purgatory to start purging your soul of the effects of sin in fact it's a great practice for anyone who's a disciple of jesus to get rid of sin and all of its effects and consequences as often and as quick as possible so that we can live a holier and more saintly life so i pray this episode is of benefit to you Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. God bless.